While this podcast will cover information about how to access therapy and other mental health services, it is not intended to be a substitute for said services. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you feel you are in need of mental health assistance, please seek out licensed professional care in your area. that type of therapy podcast. Welcome folks to Mental Health Quest, the therapist office and beyond. We're here to answer your questions about mental health, including how to access it, what it looks like, Why should you do it? All of the above. And so much more. This is Mental Health Quest, episode number six, depression. We're talking about depression today. I am Charlene McPherson, LCSWC. And I am Benjamin Tynes, registered psychological associate. And we are going to be talking about depression today. We did want to talk about, uh, like, kind of... um, talk about the elephant in the room we did take a break during the holidays (laughs) um it was an unplanned break or else we would have let you all know but we're back um and we're back into it and we are hitting the ground running um we have our first guest today which is very excited we're excited to to introduce her we just wanted to get the the regular stuff out of the way and then get started so we obviously thank you for all the support from our listeners Um, If you enjoy our content, please rate and view us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using um, so that others would be able to find our amazing content, right? Yes. Obviously, we are also here to answer your questions about mental health, so please send any questions you have uh, that we could cover on the podcast. If you'd like to reach us individually, uh, you can uh, contact us at mentalhealthquest1 at gmail.com. You can also find our podcast on Twitter and Facebook at mentalhealth.com. MHQ podcast. Um, all right, Ben, you get to introduce our our first guest yes. expert. We Yay, are so I'm cheering for myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we are so very honored and excited. Our first guest is Dr. Christine Lilia, licensed clinical psychologist and licensed marriage and family therapist. Uh, Dr. Lilia has lived in Orange County, my hometown area, her entire life. And loves the people and climate here because West Coast, best coast. Uh, She is both a licensed marriage and family therapist and a licensed clinical psychologist with expertise in trauma and severe depression. She's been married for 25 years and has two sons, 18 and 21. In her spare time, she likes to play piano, write short stories and poetry, and take her 120-pound rescue dog for walks. And that is probably the most adorable thing I've ever read. Mm -hmm. So, welcome, everybody, to Dr. Lilia! Yay! Yay! I'm so happy to be here. I am a fan of your podcast. I have listened to every single episode, and I just love the integration of providing, you know, that that clinical information in a way that's informative and fun, and I'm hoping to continue that today. 
We are covering depression today. Uh, so obviously there's going to be a fine balance where we're going to try and keep it light, but at the same time, you know, take it seriously. The first thing we wanted to cover was what is depression? I think that's a pretty good place to start. You know, it's so funny because most of my therapy work is with adolescents and young adults. So you're talking like the 12 to 25. And I don't get very clinical with them. I kind of let them define what's bothering them and then match them. So I don't start off saying like, well, tell me about your symptoms of depression. Instead, I sit down with them and I'll be like, well, tell me about you. Like, what's going on with you? Tell me about you. And then as they're talking, I start to establish a baseline. And so as I continue talking with them, maybe I'll say things like, is that different than it used to be? Like you're talking mm -hmm. about like you're isolating and you're not going out a lot. Is that new for you? And when I'm doing that, obviously clinicians would know I'm starting to figure out, are we looking at anhedonia, which is a really fancy clinical term. You'll never hear me use it again. Don't worry. But it's just a fancy <laughs> way of saying you don't enjoy the things that you used to enjoy. And so across the board, are you sleeping differently? Wow. You only get like four hours a night. Is that typical for you? Oh, you're sleeping 12. Is that typical for you? You're not feeling so good about yourself. Okay. Talk about that. You know, is, it, is that typical for you or is that something new? And so in having what I call a conversation, I always say um, I, I supervise nine interns. So what I tell people is I don't do therapy. I, I don't know what that means. But what I do do is I have conversations that are therapeutic. And so when you sit in a room with me, what most people say is like, I'm just talking with you. And I'm like, yeah, if you're in a room with me, that's therapy. This is it. Like, I just want to get to know you. And so in doing that, to answer your question, I start to establish what I clinically would define as depressive symptoms, which I'm sure we're going to get into as we continue to talk. But that's going to be things like feeling a sense of worthlessness, feeling bad about yourself, subjectively feeling sad, having trouble with concentration. I mean, I can go on and on, um, but we're going to start to see that something's off. I think that's just the best way to put it, because everyone's going to have different symptoms of depression, and it's going to be defined differently for every single person. So I'm coming from a very, not a generalized way, like I want to know for that specific person, what's off for them? And would we clinically define that as depression, given the story that they're sharing? Yeah, definitely. That And that's, that's exactly what I do as well. Um, it's, and, and that's what I think this, this whole podcast is about, right? Is not going through like the list of, of DSM, you know, symptoms and things like that. It's how are you doing? You know, um, is there a big change? Is there something you want to work on? Is there something that you're not enjoying or, or, you know, that's really bothering you? Those are the important symptoms, you know, to us as therapists, because that's, that's the quality of life, right? Um, Absolutely. And that's yeah. what we're there. Yeah. And that's what we're there to try and help. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. Everyone's going to have different symptoms and a different way to express such symptoms. And I think that just needs to be taken in consideration. That's just part of being a good therapist is, is meeting your person where they are, not checking off boxes and saying, well, you know, here you go. You know, you checked off five out of nine. So I'm going to diagnose you a certain way. How about you're not doing as well as you used to? Let's make that our clinical focus. Yeah, with a lot of the clients that uh, I see and have seen, 
it's kind of actually a, a balance between going with what they say, but then also asking me specifically what is depression, what is anxiety disorder, because they maybe have like heard about it or they did it, they want to know do they meet the diagnosis or not? Because as we mentioned in a previous episode, that kind of fear of diagnosis is what inhibits people from engaging in therapy a lot of times. And so what I've done is kind of like what you said, Dr. Lilia, is you know just talking about their experiences first and focusing more on that. But I have, if they have requested it, I have like explained, you know, what is depression typically considered from a clinical standpoint, from a, you know, what does the DSM say? But I always preface that by saying, you know, just because that's what the DSM says doesn't mean that that's you. Only you know your experience. You know, yes, we have some some mixing and matching. Oh, okay, you said that you struggle with sleep and that you're having a lot of negative thoughts or whatever. Okay, that does match with what is, you know, generally considered to be depression. Uh, but I'm not looking for a label here. I'm not looking for that. You know, let's just talk about that interest. And what did you like before? And what did, what don't you like now? And all those kinds of things. Yeah, I have some clients too that, that really like, they'll say something. They'll say like, I feel like I'm just want to be by myself, you know, saying, oh yeah, that is isolation. That is a, a typical symptom of depression. They're like, is that what... Oh, okay. And they find that relief in that label sometimes, right? That it's not just them. It's not just that they're, okay, you know, that you hear it, that they're crazy or that, you know, it's just that their, you know, problems um, are different from everybody else's. It's like, no, you know, this is something that's common for people that feel depression. Um, And that sometimes really helps kind of relieve that, that fear, stress, you know, all those different kind of things. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think as you're gathering information at some point, it is important to normalize it and to, to point out to people like, yeah, this makes sense. A lot of people have this. You're not alone in this. This, this matches what we would call depression. Um, I think that's important for people to hear you know, that they're not alone in this because one of the symptoms of depression, as we know, is that loneliness, that isolation of feeling like there's something wrong with you and, and maybe no one else is like that. Um, and it causes incredible distress for people to feel like that. So for you to be, uh, you know, the, the professional to say like, I, not only do I hear you, but there's a lot of people like you, I think is very validating for someone to hear. Sometimes they get kicked back on that, but they're, they usually they like it. They, you know, oh, this is, that's what this is, right? They just didn't have a word for it. They couldn't, they couldn't communicate it because they didn't have a word for it. Um, and I feel like that's half of our job is just <laughs> teaching people the words uh, for the things that they're feeling so that then they can find the relief of being able to communicate it when before they didn't even know what word to use, you know? Totally. Yeah, I've noticed that, you know, people come in for the very first time for the, you know, first intake session, which we've talked about in previous episode, what is intake? Um, and, you know, a lot of, they come in and they, like, they know that something is wrong. They just don't know how to say that. They don't know what, 
what is wrong specifically. They just know something is wrong and they don't have the words for it. I, you know, it's equal parts stigma, but equal parts freeing to know that there is a, a, a word for your experiences. You know, obviously people don't want to have the diagnosis, but they like to know that what they're feeling has been seen so many times that it's been basically given a name, you know, throughout history. So. So I think that's a that's a good transition into us actually going going through some of these words and what they mean. Right. Some of these symptoms. Um, and the first one we have is lack of motivation. That one, it, it definitely is a little bit more clinical sounding for me. Um, so we're, we're talking about you want to do your homework. You really do. But you just cannot pull yourself to be able together to be able to do it. Like it's either, you know, you may not even be able to get out of bed. That's one uh, pretty severe symptom of, of lack of motivation. Um, not being able to, you know, do the things you know you have to do. And then you, you run into that cycle of, you know, negative self-talk on top of that, <laughs> where you start beating yourself up because you can't do the things you need to do. And then it just kind of uh, keeps going round and round and round, yeah, right? It's a, it's a vicious circle. Well, yeah. So with the lack of motivation, you know, a lot of times people, they, the way they say to me is, I want to. I just can't. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that way they say it is because it's not that they don't want to, because oftentimes that's where a lot of that negative self-talk comes from is that, you know, they, they're shaming themselves, but it's not that you don't want to, it's not that you're being lazy or anything like that you, you do want to, you just can't because you don't have the motivation. You don't have that energy, you know, to kind of get yourself forward. And especially for teens and young adults who where there's a lot of external expectations, like if you're working with high school students or even college students, I know both, uh, you know, Charlene and Dr. Lilia work with college students. Um, they have a lot of pressure from family, probably. Yeah. And, That's you know, sure. if a parent doesn't understand what lack of motivation is, they see that as, oh, they're just lazy. And mm, that, no, I hate that word. I, I hate it, that word so much. I, I hate it too because it's not laziness. If no. you know, it's it's something completely different. But you know, people need to understand that it is different. Um, because once we can say, well, no, he wants to. He just needs to learn how to get himself energized to do it, or she, or they. And our clients, our clients hate the word lazy too. Watch mm-hmm. their face when they come in and they say, yeah. "Oh, I'm just lazy," or "I'm being told I'm lazy." You just see how oh, how they shut down. They, yeah, I, you I can see the, the judgment that's coming in from an outside source when they talk about that. I had a client like that on Friday, and they were just like, "Well, I'm just being lazy," and his body language closed off immediately. I said, "No, no, you're not being lazy." You wanted to do it, right? Yeah. That's not laziness then. Laziness would be you didn't even want to to give a give a flying beep. Um, you know, you, <laughs> but you did. Pig. You gave two flying beeps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had some beeps to give. Um, but that's what I say to people is it's like laziness denotes a choice that I chose not to do this. And it's like, okay, well, did you actually choose not to do it? Or if you had a choice, would you have done it? And the answer usually is, yes, if I could have done it, I would have. 
you know? And I'm like, then again, like, like you said, Benjamin, that's not laziness. That means that something is getting in the way, um, is blocking your, you know, doing whatever you're trying to do and just calling it lazy isn't going to help you find out what that thing is. Right. Um, I always say too, like that, that lazy is almost like a personality trait, right? Like you can't change personality. You know what I mean? Like you've got to, this is something that you're working on. This is something that's getting in the way. Um, and the first thing, you know, I'm sure you two, uh, do this as well. Is this like, we have enough going on. We don't need to judge, to add judgment and shame and blame and, you know, all that other stuff on top of what's already going on. So it's like, if we could pull that back a little bit, even at the beginning of, of a therapy, like a, a relationship with a client, letting them know that that shame and blame for some reason is humans. We think that if we blame ourselves, shame ourselves, beat ourselves up, that we're going to motivate ourselves to do things. <laughs> I still people. Yeah, shame don't work that way. Exactly. Despite math, ignore math completely, which I tend to do anyway. A negative plus a negative is not a positive. Not in therapy. <laughs> no. Not not in real life. No. Exactly. Life. Only in the math classroom, yeah. and no one cares about math. No, if you go into psychology, it's because you're trying to avoid math. We have to power through statistics, and that's about it. And thank goodness for that. Um, I was thinking about a couple of my students this year have kind of joked around with me, which if you're thinking about doing like a suicide assessment is intriguing, um, where I'll say something to the effect of it's not your fault. You know, I, I want to really impress that upon you, that you didn't do this, you're not lazy, kind of building on what we've been talking about. And I've even had a couple of people saying like, what is this, goodwill hunting? Like, are you Robin Williams now? <laughs> if only. If only I could be like Robin like, Williams. I'm like, is that is that a problem you know and they're like no this is like amazing to have this in real life what i saw in the movie i'm like hey i'll roll with this man like this is good you know if this helps you if this helps you to conceptualize yourself differently then i'm honored to be called mr williams that that's yeah. good and, that's a compliment. and let's that is a compliment. it is a compliment and it's a compliment to them too you know it goes mm -hmm. both both ways it's bi-directional obviously not they're complimenting me and saying this is a great moment and i'm like this is a good moment because you're 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 listening and you're recognizing no it's not your fault let's see if we can do something with that and that that of course speaks to to everybody here benjamin does the the superhero therapy i do the rpg therapy we're going to use whatever we've got whatever your interests are whatever your strengths are like pop culture all of that we're going to be like, okay, how can we use this to help you get out of or get through whatever is going on, right? And if goodwill hunting is what first comes to mind, then let's, let's use yeah, it. Let's oh, go go. I, I, oh my gosh, I've talked about everything from SpongeBob SquarePants to, <laughs> yes, I don't know, a porn video that somebody wants to talk about. So wow, I'm pretty much I haven't had that yet. <laughs> how, how many years of, of training do I need to do before I get to that level? No, it's really funny. Actually, I had a client that that referenced something like that this past week. So <laughs> it is it is something that comes I up. I think I will stick with Marvel movies and anime. But I just I can't emphasize enough. I've already said this before, but I like to repeat myself sometimes. You've got to join your people. You know, you got to meet them. And so if they want to talk about something that's a little off center, I take that as an opportunity to learn. Yeah, because I, I use it to learn with them and I might be able to use it with someone else. 
down the road. So I'm, I'm pretty open-minded and I think that's really important for a good therapist. You know, you got to just roll with the punches and, and that's good modeling for them. You know, life hands you stuff and yeah, no judgments. We just, roll, we with just roll with it. And the other, the other thing that, that, uh, I find too, that's, that's common, you know, uh, especially as our, our, um, uh, gender assigned at birth males and are brought up as males, anger tends to be, um, a, a symptom that most males are comfortable with. Um, they're not comfortable with you know, the sadness, um, the, the self-doubt, the, you know, apathy, things like that, but it'll come out in anger. It'll, you know, we call it externalizing, right? Um, they're externalizing that, that depression, um, because they just don't have, you know, uh, the words they haven't been taught. Yeah. Yeah, They haven't been socialized to deal with other emotions other than anger. Exactly. So if anger is the way that you've been taught how to express yourself, when you're beating yourself on the inside, it's going to translate to beating other people up on the outside. And I don't mean physically, but you know, when people are depressed, they get angry at themselves for being depressed. And so then they lash out at other people oftentimes. Sometimes I do that with an illustration. I'll literally hold my hand like like I'm a pretend gun. I know it's a podcast, but you guys can visualize if you're listening. Like you're kidding, you're like bam, bam, bam with your finger. And so I'll do that um, in a room with someone. I'll say, so you're angry at someone. You're pointing your finger at them basically and saying, you did this, you did this, you did this. That's your anger. And they'll be like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm pointing a finger at someone and I'm yelling at them. I'm like, look at your hand for a minute and tell me where the other four fingers are. And they look at it kind of quizzically, you know, because that's a strange thing to be asked. They're like, well, four are like kind of looking at me. And I'm like, funny how that happens. Wow, I maybe we should talk about that. What do you think about that? That you're upset with someone and pointing a finger, but you got you know four of them mm-hmm. right back at you, and they get real quiet. They're like, well, I don't know what to do with that. And, you know, and my you know my response is, we're going to figure out what to do with that. Um, and and that's something uh, too. Like we were talking about, like learning these words, learning how to verbalize, like especially you know um, socialized males they're just told to push through, you know, you don't feel feelings, you don't, you know, talk to anybody about it. You just have to be the man, man up, take on the pain and just keep going. Um, there's a lot, uh, a big push on, I'm on TikTok. I don't know if you all do TikTok at all, but I see a lot of videos of men on there. They're saying like, who, who are we supposed to talk to? Like, you know, we were always told, don't talk to anybody. Don't, we can't even identify what's going on because the only thing that we've been told is that anger and pushing through are the only acceptable options. Yeah. So a lot of the times you have to start with just teaching them that this is what sadness feels like. This is what disappointment feels like. This is what, you know, oh yeah. And they, they are feeling those things. It's just that, again, they didn't have the words to um, verbalize it. And it's really important. I think, uh, when, I mean, dealing with any mental health issue, but I think especially depression because depression can oftentimes feel for people so overwhelming, um, that they get lost in it. Um, being able to give words to the feelings, to the subjective feelings. So, I, you know, 
depressed is a subjective feeling, but that's different than depression, which is the, you know, overall kind of diagnosis. But so when I'm talking with my clients, you know, a lot of times to be able to give names to the subjective feelings is almost like the way I've had it described to me by a client uh, was I was on an ocean at night and so I couldn't see anything. But those names were like buoys that have lights on them. So I can figure out, you know, where am I going? And that's really important for people of not just males, but, you know, everybody to have those buoys. Um, Because if we can put a name to it, then we can start to examine, okay, what is this feeling? And why are we having this feeling? Emotions are there for a reason. They're telling us what we need. And so being able to, first, we have to know what is it that we're feeling. So, okay, we're feeling sadness. Okay, what is sadness? Why do people feel sad? You know, and what is it that we need when we feel sad? And then the clients are able to be like, well, if I'm sad, then, you know, it's because I, I'm losing something or because I feel like I don't have something that's important. Okay, so what is it that we need then? To find something important, to to be happy. It's like, well, I mean, happiness will come later on, but finding some connection, finding something of value to you. Okay, let's do that then. I like to tell some of my clients that if you look at the word emotion, and you break it down, motion is a word in there. So I tell people, you know, we're going to define what the feeling is and really respect that and talk about that. And then part of our work is to put the motion in emotion and figure out how are we going to be a little more action oriented to get you moving in a different direction than where you are right now. Now, um, we did want to cover, this is just a trigger warning for anybody, uh, for, we're about to mention suicidal ideation. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, you can skip a few seconds ahead uh, or a few minutes ahead if if that's something you uh, that that bothers you too much. But it's definitely an important conversation to have when you're talking about depression. So suicidal ideation, obviously, that's the the clinical word for you know wanting to kill yourself. Now, I don't say harm yourself. Because that's a different, that's a different thing. That's a different category. Um, this is suicide ideation can go from, I can't do this anymore, you know, kind of apathy to actively thinking of a plan or having intent to follow out a plan. And it definitely does go along a lot with depression, right? Because there's that there's no light at the end of the tunnel, you know, um, this is it, this is how I'm going to feel for the rest of my life. And it's painful. And I just want it to stop. I, I oftentimes kind of talk with clients when the issue of suicidal ideation comes up and thoughts of death and dying, I actually find there's a difference uh, between thoughts of death and dying and wanting to, wanting to die slash wanting to kill yourself. So just thoughts of being dead or of death in general would be called morbid ideation. You know, you're thinking of death. Okay, that's not the same thing as actually wanting to die or wanting to kill yourself. And that's something that uh, I've been having to have that conversation with uh, some client of mine who has struggled, you know, in the past with 
I'm just so they felt like, oh, does that make me suicidal? And I said, did you want to die? No, then no. Thinking about death is is a part of depression because we're already in that negative mindset. That's those negative thoughts just spiraling to a deeper deeper level, but it's not the same thing as wanting to die. And even just if you have a thought of, oh, I want to die, even that in and of itself is different than actually having a plan and an intention to act on that plan and means to act on the plan, which is a very different conversation altogether from just wanting to die. Why is it that we want to die? Is it because we actually want to be dead? No, just because we feel overwhelmed by everything going on. And so it just, in our negative mindset, that's the only out that we can see. And so being able to talk to clients and normalize it in that way and say, well, just because you have thoughts about dying or about death does not mean you are suicidal. And that does not mean I'm going to send you to the hospital. Yeah, there's a real stigma. People come in and they're just terrified to talk to about this. The assumption just from watching movies, you know, pop culture, talking with their friends or or family members is that the second that you say, I'm having suicidal thoughts, oh, we're calling an ambulance and we're going to stick you on a cot and then we're going to stick you in a hospital and it's going to be one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of thing. And and that's really, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to talk about that if that was my perception. So I think part of our job as, as therapists is to destigmatize the conversation, you know, to say like, yeah, you know, you can talk about this. And then I'm, I'm totally echoing what you just said. And, and just because you're saying that you have thoughts doesn't mean that you are actively suicidal or we're going to treat you as actively suicidal. We can have honest conversations yeah. about this. You're I, I call those like intrusive thoughts, right? Um, we, we, uh, and some intrusive thoughts are normal, right? Like I, I say to people, like, you know, if, Anybody that's like, I was in the Cliffs of Mohair, right? Over in Ireland. Some, anybody thinks like, oh, you look over the edge and you go, I wonder, but that's not a suicidal thought. That's just a normal reaction to the environment around you, a curious question, an intrusive thought, and then you just let it go. And you're like, oh, that's nothing. But some people hold on to those um, and it becomes the intrusive, like, thought that really starts to bother them. Um, and I like to normalize some of those because it's like, no, that's a normal thought. Like we have, I think it's like 50 to 60,000 thoughts a day. Um, and it's like, you can't hold on to every single one of those. Some of them are just random, normal, everyday thoughts. And that, no, that does not make you suicidal. And the other, the other thing, like in a session, um, in my intake, uh, I explain, you know, we have to explain confidentiality anyway. Um, and then we have to go over the limitations of confidentiality. I always do it verbally because, you know, a lot of people do not read the, you know, the intake paperwork, which is, you know, their choice, but, um, I always explain there's a range, right. Um, that you may have some, you know, thoughts of, of death, you know, or, or, you know, things like that, but that's not something I'm going to send you to the hospital for. Um, the only time I'm going to send you to the hospital is that if I'm afraid that you're going to follow through with a plan or you have a plan or you intent, you have intent to follow out a plan. Um, the other one that I always add to that I was never taught, but that I just kind of figured out over, over time, uh, training clients was if you're afraid that you're going to impulsively act on something, a suicidal thought or something like that, then that's, we're going to go get that checked out. 
so I know you're safe, right? I would agree. I've said that to all my clients, especially because when a lot of, sometimes they come in and one of their presenting concerns is uh, self-harm. And I know you already mentioned that that is a very different thing than suicidal ideation. And so I will always say, okay, just want to point out something here. Just because you are harming yourself or wanting to cut yourself or whatever, that's not the same thing as being suicidal. Uh, that's just a, you know, a thing that we do to try to relieve that pain or to feel something because we feel numb or empty, which is then all the patients are like, wait, that's exactly what I do. And so we need to then go and say, okay, what is suicidal ideation? And, and what are the, you know, what is the criteria that needs to be met for me to break confidentiality and get your help? And that's only if you're actively, you know, intending to kill yourself to a degree that you do not feel that you can keep yourself safe. Safe, right. And I always say that if you are not able, if you are telling me that you don't think that you can manage it without help, if you're telling me that you don't know that you'll be able to keep yourself safe in the next you know, week before I see you again, then that's when we need to get help and break confidentiality, only when your safety is at risk. Otherwise- I love how you're saying that. Yeah, absolutely. Because if otherwise people are going to not tell you anything because they're going to say, you know, oh, the first time I mention any thoughts about death, he's going to send me to the hospital. As, you know, Dr. Lily said, we need to destigmatize that. So the the hospital is a last resort. And it's and as someone who has worked in hospitals, that has basically been my entire career up until now was working in psych hospitals. The people who go there are that's a last resort. They're there because they were not able to manage. They were not safe. They could not keep themselves safe. That the, you know, the thoughts were so bad. The, you know, intrusiveness of those thoughts were so bad. They, mm -hmm. they felt so overly helpless and hopeless. That's when they go to the hospital. And that is an actual, you know, th those words helpless and hopeless are actual like keywords that hospitals look at when interviewing clients to determine are they safe because if you are saying that you don't feel you know like you're hopeless or that you're helpless or whatever that tells us as hospital workers and as therapists outside of hospital okay they don't see a way out and they don't see that they can help themselves once those two words have been you know magically invoked and when we're able to see okay this is actually more serious than just having thoughts because if it's just a thought Okay, we can work with thoughts, but if there's an intention and there's a plan of action and a means of an action, that's when we need to intervene. The two things that I really keep my ears open for, um, Ben, just like you said, when people refer to hopelessness, like they don't think tomorrow is going to be better. That's a big red flag for me. The other thing that I listen is when they talk about being a burden to others in their life. When you're like, nobody wants me around. I'm in the way. Everyone just sighed who's in this room right now because we all know, we've all been there where you hear it and you just know in your that's, gut. Well, that's that hopelessness. This is that's that not a good situation. It is. It's building on it though. It's, it's more than just being hopeless means you think tomorrow isn't going to be better. The burden means today. Exactly. You like you're actively so, causing problems for other people. It has nothing to do with it. You know what I mean? Like it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the burden that you're putting on other people. 
So Ben, you're right. I mean, absolutely. You know, it's a hybrid of, of the two, um, but you get that hybrid. And that's when I start really looking at, um, like you were making reference to the impulsivity and where are we going with this? I had a, a college student once that actually brought their pet to me, like actually came to a session and said, I can't take care of this animal. I'm, I'm like, I'm such a piece of garbage that, you know, this dog like doesn't deserve me. I'm a burden even to my animal. Can, can you take it? And all that's going through my head is I, I'm going to be calling 911 by the end of this conversation. I don't introduce that at that point, obviously, but what's going through my head as a clinician yeah, is this and they're giving away the things. Yeah. They're, they're giving away so the prize. That actually reminds they're saying me of a, to me. a situation of a patient that I had in the hospital. Uh, the, this was maybe my first month on the job as a social worker. And the, the patient had come in very severely depressed, also had some, you know, psychosis and everything, but primarily was depressed and suicidal, um, had not been taking care of themselves. The, basically that feeling of burdenness and hopelessness had extended to them, not even, you know, cleaning their, their house, changing clothes, taking showers, feeding themselves, but they also couldn't feed their dog. I don't even remember how uh, they, how the police found out about them to do a welfare check, but someone had called for a welfare check for this person. Uh, thank God that they did. Um, and I think it was actually a neighbor because the dog had been barking and, you know, they were wondering, okay, how, you know, normally the guy takes care of the dog and, you know, I see them going for a walk and I haven't seen the dog going for a walk in a while. And so the police did a welfare check, you know, dog was barking and everything. So they entered the house, you know, they had reasonable suspicion. Okay, something's wrong here. And the the dog was like, you know, they had no food for the dog. And there was some little bits of quote unquote food for the human, but it was all like junk food and like, you know, nothing of substance. And he wasn't even eating that. And so the police, you know, were talking to him to try to kind of find out what's going on. And he just said, get the dog help. Forget about me. Get the dog help. <laughs> well, granted, the police took both of them to get help. You know, the dog went to a, a shelter, um, a animal rescue, and, and he went to the hospital. And then they were actually reunited after he got better. Oh, yay. That was so when he, yeah, when has a happy he came ending. to the hospital, uh, he asked us if we could call the animal rescue to see if they can hold on to the dog until he gets discharged. Because he recognized you know, once he's on medication, he's going to be able to get himself through it. Okay. So I did that. Um, and it took a, took a while to find the animal rescue because the police did not include that in their report, which animal rescue they took it to. So some investigation required, but I was able to reach them and say, hey, he's going to be, you know, he's getting help. He's going to be fine. You know, we're going to set him up with in-home support and all of these things. So the dog will also be safe in the home. Would you be able to hold on to the dog so he can come and pick up the dog when he's discharged? And they said yes, because they don't want to give the dog up. And, you know, it's, it's, that's, you know, they want the dog to be with his family, the dog's person. So when you mentioned that thing about the dog, it just reminded me. So I think we, we've, pretty well covered a lot of the symptoms um, that, that people kind of explain to us or have said to us. Um, is there anything else you all want to add on that that piece? The numbness. Ah, yeah. Feeling numb. A lot of clients uh, have told me 
that they just feel empty. They feel numb. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of like a, mm-hmm. eh, just like a whatever. Even that when they're having fun, yeah, you know, they still feel numb. Yeah, exactly. When they're having fun or when they're with family or friends, it's just whatever. And so I think that's a really important thing uh, to talk about is depression is not sadness all the time. Depression is more often not whatever. It's numbness. It's emptiness. And that's, I think, what oftentimes brings about that anhedonia, that loss of interest that Dr. Lily had mentioned is, you know, well, if you feel numb, well, then, of course, you're not going to have interest in things because you're feeling empty inside. So I think that's a really important um, symptom to keep in mind. And if any listeners, you know, either they themselves are feeling that eh, that whateverness or someone has mentioned that to them, that's kind of a sign that maybe things are a little bit more serious. That's a pretty big signal. Add to what Ben just so beautifully said, he was making reference to our listeners. And I I think that's really important to recognize who our audience is. They're going to be listening and wondering, are they alone? So sometimes I point out to people that um, the most recent statistics, and this is pre-pandemic, so this is going to be a low ball number. United States alone, we're looking at about 22 million people think about um, suicidal ideation on a recurrent basis. So if someone's coming in and saying, no one else is like this, there's something weird about me. First thing I say to them is you're actually in really good company. Me too. You know, and when I say me too, I'm, I'm not referring to myself in the room necessarily, but just to the fact, I think there's real power in the me too movement, although it, obviously it, it, it originated for different reasons. I think there is such power in sharing with our clientele you are not alone. You feel like you're alone. Ironically enough, that's a symptom of depression. But I think it's important that you hear that this is not just you and that you are in good company. There are amazing people out there that feel this also. And good for you for being strong enough and smart enough to say out loud, I need help. Uh, what I oftentimes you know, say to uh, patients and clients, the way I call that is common humanity you know, okay, you know, you are human. Yes. And then they look at me weird. Like, yes, I am human. I'm not an alien. And said, okay, other humans feel this way too. Like this is a human response. This is a human emotion. So if other humans feel this way and you are human too, then by default, you are not alone. There are people that, that, you know, understand what, what you're going through. We also wanted to kind of go over um, diagnoses, like specific depressive disorder diagnoses um, and how they may look different. If a therapist tells you, you know, this is what you have. A lot of the times I ask my clients, they're like, oh, yeah, they told me I had this. I said, did they ever explain what that was? And they're like, no. (laughs) I'm like, okay, let's. You know, I, I, again, that's that's very important information to have um, to kind of put everything into perspective that you aren't alone, that it is treatable, that we've seen it so many times, you know, all those things. And so I just felt like it would be good to um, tell the difference between some of these. If you hear this, a therapist say it or a psychiatrist or somebody like that, um, then you would have the information on, you know, at least some base information on what this may look like or feel like, right? 
So the first one we have is major depressive disorder. Um, I don't know if either one of you have um, a specific, you know, thing you want to say about that. I've got that so well memorized. I go into clinical mode on this one. There's possibly nine symptoms and you need to meet five and you need to have it for a minimum of two weeks. How about that? And I think when people are are talking in the community and they talk about being depressed, usually they're kind of referring to that, you know, is just what we call a major depressive episode. And the, the, the important part is episode right there, right? Um, it lasts, it can last for what can feel like quite a long time. Right. Um, but it's, uh, even just saying that it's an episode, hopefully gives you hope that there's an end to an episode, right? Um, you go into, you know, uh, we call it like remission or, you know, whatever, like it's not happening at, at, at one time. Um, and so that's, that's kind of important too. I feel like, you know, understanding why we say episode is because there's a, there's an end to it, right? Uh, we have, you know, diagnostically, we have those words because, you know, if we get treatment, if we do what we need to do, hopefully there's an end to it. It's it's um, not an episode that you can binge watch. Right. Exactly. There's an end to it. Nor would you want to. No. But it's, it's also, it's, it's, these are episodes that can't be binged because they have an end you know and once you reach that end you know it doesn't continue um and and hopefully you reach that with the support of you know your support system a therapist medication if needed you know all those things um so that you can get to that point where it's in remission you know that it's not happening and yeah i do find that this is like the the generalized anxiety disorder of uh, of uh, depression. Um, it covers a lot of of symptoms, um, and it's I find the more common diagnosis um, that I have uh, for people as well. Yeah, that's the one most people will like first look at when they're trying to narrow down or rule out a diagnosis. Is okay. Well, let's start with the the big one first. If they don't meet the criteria for that, then that actually tells us a lot because, you know, as Dr. Lita said, okay, there's these, you know, certain number of, of criteria that need to be met out of a certain number of, you know, potential options, and it has to be in a set time frame. Well, okay, that actually is good because then that means if you don't have all of those being met exactly, well, then good, we can rule this out, and it means it's not this. It, it means we're closer to finding what it is. Mm-hmm. and helping you treat it. Um, the next one I have on the list is persistent depressive disorder or dysthymia. Um, I don't see this one very often. Um, Miss Lilia, you may have, more, I, I don't know if you have more experience with this than, than I may have. Um, I don't see it as often and it, it kind of lurks in the corner. It can be a little harder to see because by definition, it's a very mild um, depression, it's lower threshold than major depressive disorder. And it also is a lot longer. I think you have to have it for like two years or something before you can be diagnosed with it. So when you meet someone with it, there's almost a strange comfort that they carry with them. I think they're so used to having it that diagnosing dysthymia or persistent depressive disorder requires the person to to really step outside of the box and recognize that that's a mild depression. They might not describe themselves as such. I think it's harder to find. Uh, it's like a persistent 
and, and that's why it's called persistent, obviously, depressive disorder, but it's like, you know, a constant. And like you said, like people don't recognize that they're in it. This is just how they operate. Like that's just their norm. And it's been their norm for such a long time. A lot of the times that, that there's no comparison, right? A lot of the times what I try to, okay, well, think of a time where you were happy. Think of a time where you were you know, this is harder with, with this type of diagnosis because it's been happening for so long. A lot of people, you know, don't have those examples in their head of, of feeling better or, you know, whatever that is for them. So the next one we have is manic depression. That one is a little bit more severe um, than, uh, well, it goes along with bipolar disorder, right? So in a manic depression, you have a really, really, and in bipolar disorder, you have a really, really high, 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 and then you have a really low, 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 low. Like this is not being able to get out of bed, not eating, not, you know, stuff like that usually is pretty on, on the pretty severe end of, of depression. I guess that's a better way to say it. My concern when I'm treating people with, um, bipolar manic depression is if there's a mixed episode which is a fancy way of saying you're you're manic and depressed at the same time i think the likelihood of a suicide attempt is highest during that part so when i'm looking at lethality um, someone having both ends of the bipolar spectrum at the same time makes me a little cautious in conversations with them people think you know the common misconception about depression is that if you are depressed and you know and you really in the depths of depression that, that you're going to be at risk of suicide, but actually that's not the case because if you're in the depths of depression, if you're in that numbness and anhedonia, the no energy, well, you're not going to have the energy to actually act on those suicidal intentions or ideations. It's when people start to feel better, uh, when they start to get more energy, that that's where the risk really lies. And that's what, that's why the mixed episode of, of manic depression, or bipolar disorder is so serious because they in the they, they have energy from the from the highs but they also have the extreme negative thoughts from the lows and that's where the danger lies is because they have that energy to go through with their plan and then um mood dysregulation disorder i am not as familiar with this one as i probably should be um i don't know about you all um what does that look like the way i understand it it's Yes, there's the mood, but it's not so much a depression like we normally think of depression. That's, I think, where a lot of the lashing out of depression is kind of seen because it's a lot of behaviors. Um, and they're not able to regulate their moods in a healthy manner. So they're feeling the extremes of their emotions and they are acting out on it um, and it becomes disruptive to their life. Uh, that's the way I understand it. I have not actually met anyone that I had diagnosed with that. Um, I've only ever read about it. So I, I don't know, Dr. Lilia, do you have more experience with that? Not as much as you would think it is new. Um, this is a diagnosis that if my memory serves me correctly was added to our most recent diagnostic manual, which is number five right now. That's a tough one. I, I have not personally diagnosed someone with that, um, nor have I, in my opinion, have I seen a lot of it. I think it's, it's, something that needs to be a continuing conversation. But at this point, I mean, I see a, a lot of the uh, major depressive disorder, and I don't know if we're going to touch on it. I do see with some of the, the women I work with, um, things that are related to uh, postpartum or perinatal 
Um, so I think, yeah, let's give a shout, shout out to um, that kind of depression because I think that goes, that gets minimized or underdiagnosed because we say to women um, from a cultural perspective, ah, you know, you're just being dramatic or you're being emotional or, you know, you're, you're just being this, you know, go away. Um, and uh, that can be a very real disorder with, with some very hefty consequences if you have a new parent who's suffering from postpartum depression, it impacts not just um, their functioning, obviously, yeah. but their newborn child. So I think we need to have honest conversations about some of the lesser known, less talked about depressive disorders. And and can you talk more about that? Like, what does that tend to look like, um, the, the postpartum depression? Oh, gosh. Uh, a zombie kind of um, presentation. You, uh, ben, you were talking about the numbness just this disconnect from them, themselves and their child. Um, when you see a new mom, they might be fatigued, but they're engaged with their kid. If their kid cries, they, they kind of perk up and they're like, oh, my kid needs something. I need to go over. If you're in a room with, with a woman suffering from postpartum depression and their child is asking for some kind of help through cries, there's just not the same response. They've really closed themselves off. And you'll see it in the room. You'll just see that the dead eyes and the, the lack of affect. Um, and when I see that, that's when I start uh, normalizing it once again, you know, that like a lot of women go through this because we culturally, once again, we um, ascribe certain characteristics to people and women in particular and say like, you should act a certain way when you have a kid. And so you're supposed to have a baby and have a flat stomach and be back at work if that's your choice and, and all sorts of things. You're supposed to look really pretty and, and not be upset about anything, right? Yeah, luckily I had a group of uh, of friends that that were having kids at the same time. I have an eight year old that were having kids at the same time, so we definitely talked about this stuff, like feeling alone, feeling isolated the first year um, because you can't really go too many places because the baby needs this, that, or the other. Um, and then the also, you know. Um, having a baby is hard physically as well as emotionally um, and, and recovering from that, yep. you know, physical you trauma to your body. Right. Um, and then having, like you said, having to move on 68 weeks later um, back to work or, you know, whatever you need to do. So it definitely within itself is a really hard time. And then, you know, add somebody who's, um, you know, predisposed to have postpartum depression. And it, it just makes everything, you know, 10 times harder. We definitely, like you said, as a society, we just, oh, you're fine. This is how all moms feel when, you know, they're during their first year. And it's like, no, there's definitely a, a difference between postpartum depression and, you know, new motherhood. So thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. And so I think unless there's any other ones we want to bring up, I would just throw out um, seasonal affective disorder. Um, might be one just to throw out there, especially given the time we're, we're shooting this in um, January and kind of tis the season um, for people that are reactive to the change in seasons and will have symptoms of depression that I think mimic major depressive disorder and yet seem to resolve themselves as the sun comes out. And I, there's, um, I, we're about to talk about treatment, you know, for, but like specifically for that one, I've known a couple of people that actually get like, um, lamps, they have like sun mm -hmm. lamps where they'll sit in front of it for like 10, 15 minutes a day 
to get some of that vitamin D and sunlight and, and things like that um, to be able to help them with their depression. It's really interesting. It is really interesting. I, I actually knew someone who um, purchased one of those therapeutic sun lamps and said that it just made the difference between life and death for him. So it's one instance, but wow. Yeah. With, with the seasonal affective disorder, people oftentimes mistake that to just being like, Oh, well, you're just sad because it's not sunny. It's like, no, it's not that you're just sad because it's cloudy outside. As Dr. Lilia knows, we live in Orange County where normally it is very sunny. And when it's cloudy here, we typically get very, you know, not happy because we're spoiled. <laughs> but there's a difference between us in our spoiled, you know, Orange County, California, wanting sunlight and someone with seasonal affective disorder where their body is actively responding to the change in the environment. And that's what it is. It is, and, and actually, if you really think about it, it is the more pure evolutionary response because humans evolved in, in various different areas where the changes in the seasons impacted their survival and the ability to find food and everything like that. So this is an evolutionary response. People have evolved this way to be responsive to the changes in the seasons because that's how their bodies was helping them to survive in, you know, in a, in a time period when we did not have, you know, supermarkets on every street corner and DoorDash and, you know, Amazon Prime. Um, so that's, you know, people say, oh, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just emotional. It's like, mm, no, you're actually a very evolved human being. Mm -hmm. And I think no matter what kind of depression we're talking about thematically, what we've all established is providing education to your clients about what are the symptoms of depression and normalizing it are two of the most important things you can do in working with someone who has any kind of depression. There's many treatment options. And I know, Charlene, you're about to segue into that right now. So I'm kind of helping here, hopefully. Um, but but um, I, I think no matter what your presentation is, whether it's mild depression, severe depression, mild or severe suicidality, I think giving them definitions and vocabulary that works for them and then saying, it's not just you, you know, a lot of people go through this is incredibly helpful for someone who feels so alone. And that's the whole purpose of this podcast. To educate yeah. you, to let you know that you are not alone, that everything that we talk about is things that people all over the world feel and experience. And if there's one, you know, message for anybody out there, you are not alone. Congratulations, you're human. Well, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want an adult. I don't want a human. <laughs> uh, I've heard that on a consistent basis, too. Adulting and being human, two different things. Yeah. <laughs> you're right, then. So we, what we wanted to follow up with, you know, what does a diagnosis look like? What is, you know, what are the different diagnoses? Is, what are the treatment options for that we found have been the best for these certain diagnoses, right? So, um, and we're hoping later in the podcast to have another series on each individual um, type of therapy um, with an expert on explaining kind of how it differs, but, you know, what it's good for, um, what it's more useful for. I tend to, the reason why CBT is at the top of the list <laughs> is I tend to use CBT quite a bit, um, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I talk a lot about, you know, how uh, situations, thoughts, and feelings all have to do with each other. And that internal monologue 
of what you say to yourself when you're dealing with a situation like depression, when you're dealing with that negative self-talk constantly. There's going to be a reaction to that, and that's going to be depression and sadness and numbness and, you know, all those things. Um, so helping someone to identify their, what we call them core beliefs, right, as therapists, uh, kind of identify these beliefs about ourselves that we tell ourselves in our head over and over and over again, if they're productive or not. I always say, I always use the word productive. I don't like positive or negative. Um, I always use the word productive. Does it help you feel the way you want to feel? Is it helping you meet, reach your goals? Um, and is it based in reality? Okay, then that's a productive statement. If the answer is no to any of those, then it's not a productive statement. And the important part, if you all get anything out of this, <laughs> the main part about this is you have to have a replacement. <laughs> you have to have a replacement thought and you have to practice that thought. Um, so with depression, you know, you, you have thoughts of, of, you know, that you're not worthwhile, that you're, you don't bring anything to the world, things like that, you know, actually coming up with counter thoughts to that, you know, even if it's, if I have to start with, I'm not that bad, <laughs> I'm willing to work with that. I'm willing to work with that. That's a replacement thought. If you, if you can believe that, then that is absolutely fine. That's where we'll start, right? when um you're trying something new and i uh, what i love to explain to people this is my favorite thing is neuroplasticity it's a big word but it just means that you can build new neural pathways and you do it's not just like i'm not just telling you things this is like science they look at the brain before th you know therapy and then they look at the brain after cbt therapy and there's a change um, you're actually building new uh, neuropathways in your head um, on how to um, combat those those type of thoughts and what is going to replace the new thought, right? Um, that part just makes me so excited. I'm like, literally, you can see the difference in, in the gray matter in your brain. Yeah, you're, you're physically changing the structure of your brain. And uh, that's the thing with, and CBT is, you know, that's a gold standard therapy for depression and a lot of other, you know, disorders as well. But the thing that, it, you know, why it's used for depression is, again, like Charlene said, to challenge those negative beliefs, you know, those negative thoughts, because those thoughts are impacting your behaviors. If you're having beliefs that you're not worthwhile, and so you're not going to want to do anything then, right? You know, you can have that, feeling, well, then why should I bother going out, you know, with friends? So by changing the thought, you know, enough that we can actually start to maybe slightly believe the new thought The oh, well, you know, maybe I'm not that bad. Well, if you're not that bad, then there's a greater chance that you're going to be able to, you know, go out for at least an hour of coffee or whatever. And you can start changing your behaviors then. And when you start changing your behaviors and start getting used to the new behaviors, then your emotions are going to be changing. And then it goes back to your thoughts and then, you know, continues. And, the reason why this is for depression is because we need to address all of the above. It's the thoughts, it's the behaviors, it's the subjective feelings. So the next one we have on here is a, is a newer therapy. And by newer, I mean, you know, in the past 10 years, I think something like that. And it's called acceptance and commitment therapy. 
Um, I don't know if this is something you all use more often. Uh, I do. Um, and, you know, also just for our listeners, we will have, you know, episodes later on, you know, when we start doing a whole new series about different kinds of therapies, we will have episodes just about CBT and acceptance commitment therapy. So, um, yeah, this is a very quick thing, but acceptance commitment therapy is basically about learning to accept your emotions as just you know normal parts of human being and then being able to take committed actions to be able to commit yourself to okay well if this is you know how i'm feeling okay how can i work with that um the the biggest part of acceptance community therapy is you know using mindfulness skills to understand what is it that you're feeling and noticing what the emotion is so that way you can learn how to respond appropriately and also to not judge yourself. Um, a lot of times people are like, I'm, you know, oh, I'm, you know, feeling depressed. And so that must mean I'm a horrible person. So acceptance commitment therapy, we're like, okay, so you're having feelings of depression. Okay. That's okay. You're allowed to feel that way. You're, they are valid. But just because something is valid does not mean it's true. And so that's when the com- the commitment part comes in, that you commit to saying, okay, well, if it's valid but not true, then I can create my own truth. And so you start creating those new behaviors and taking new actions that, you know, honor the, the new truth that you're trying to set for yourself. This is a newer one. And I find sometimes when they come out with like newer therapies, I'm like, oh, I've been doing that. It's just not not as structured, you know, and, and really obviously like getting training on this and doing it the right way and, and things like that is very important. But um, again, just accepting, you know, in, you know, your your life that you're going to have certain thought, feeling behaviors and, and figuring out how to work with them that, you know. Well, because all I mean, there's the um, there's a theory of oh, what is it called? The one therapy theory or something like that, that basically all different kinds of psychotherapies are basically all the same thing. And and they all basically have a lot of overlap. It's just in the kind of what, you know, in which aspect are we emphasizing? So CBT emphasizes the actual changing of behaviors, whereas acceptance commitment, you know, uh, emphasizes a lot more of the lack of judgment and, you know, practicing mindfulness to learn how to just sit with your emotions and not feel overwhelmed by them. And um, so, so we went over the like therapy treatments, right? Um, so obviously, one of the um, more in research, what it shows is that in with depression, um, you know, especially um, the best type of treatment is a psychotherapy and a medication if you're at that that level, right? Um, I know a lot of people are resistant to medication. We're just kind of saying like, this is an option. It's not necessarily everybody has to do it this way, but um, it is out there. It is, uh, has been researched um, and psychotherapy and medication tend to be um, the, the gold standard, like we said, of, of treating depression. But it depends on the severity of the depression. Right, exactly. It depends on the severity. I also want to um, hop on this and say that I think it also depends on the type of depression and the symptoms. So for example, if someone is having what I would call physiological depression, meaning GI issues, pain, sleep, insomnia issues, things that are more of the body, 
um, I am more inclined to provide psychoeducation on the, the pharmacolo uh, pharmacology, excuse me, um, hybrid with traditional talking therapy as a way to treat that type of depression. A lot of people aren't comfortable with having the, the conversation about um, psychiatric medication first off. So I tend not to bring it up like first, you know, month or two, honestly, you know, until uh, that person's comfortable talking about those type of things. Cause it is, it, I mean, for me, I, I get scared taking like Advil's half of the time, you know, <laughs> that's just, that's normal. So to start taking your medication routinely, is it going to change me? All of those questions that go along with that um, are pretty, pretty scary sometimes. I think that's all the more reason we just stay in our lane and we provide the education and we refer to a general practitioner or a psychiatrist and say, you know, here's who can provide more information on that so that you can make an informed decision. Um, one thing I do to reduce the stigma, and you might have even talked about this on a previous episode, is to compare psychology to biology and point out, like, if you had a kidney infection, you probably wouldn't hesitate to take an antibiotic. If you were diagnosed as diabetic, my guess is you would be looking at uh, possible insulin shots. If you have severe depression, it is not unusual to consider medication that can help with those symptoms. So I frame it, it within a, a normal context. It's up to you. I don't push medication. That's not ethically my job. Um, but I do think part of my job is to provide options for people so that they understand what those are. And part of providing options is to be very open about it and not to be judgmental um, or to suggest that one thing is better than the other. Because, you know, depression in, in all mental illnesses comes from the brain and the brain is a physical organ in your body no different than anything else and so that actually means that mental illness and mental health issues are biological which they are science and research has shown you know changes in the neurotransmitter levels and physical structures of the brain with different disorders that's how we determine that oh wow this is something going on because it's a physical change you know not to say that everybody needs medication but if that's the thing that is needed Maybe talk to somebody who is an expert on medication. You're able to handle it. If therapy is working for you just fine, then let's stick with therapy, you know. But then we get to an issue, and I think you were going to get to this in a bit, Charlene, but there is treatment-resistant depression. Just like there's treatment-resistant bacterial infections and other things, there's treatment-resistant depression. And this is basically the most, most severest of all depressions and that's when the person is basically just at their lowest point nonstop and therapy doesn't work. Medications don't work. And, and here's the thing is if it's all from the brain, medications do act on the brain, but through a medium and, and they're not directly acting on the brain. It has to travel through the body's blood system first. Um, it has to be digested first. And so then we get to, okay, how do we treat the most severest of depressions um, that are treatment resistant to everything else. And that's where we get to some slightly controversial um, due to past mistakes of medicine, uh, just like with every other medical treatment, I swear. People put so much emphasis on the hor horrors of asylums for mental health treatment, but I'm sorry. People did really bad things with medical treatment too, you know, lobotomies and um, leeches, you know. ECT uh, and TMS. ECT is electroconvulsive therapy and TMS is transcranial magnetic stimulation. And what these are two different ways to directly influence 
certain parts of the brain that is affected by the depression strongest. And electroconvulsive therapy is more direct because the electrodes are actually attached to your skin. And so it, the skin, you know, our bodies are made of water in case people did not know that water conducts electricity in case people did not know that. That's why electroconvulsive therapy works is because our, our skin and the blood and everything transmits the electricity directly to the brain. And that's, it's acting on certain areas to basically boost the neurotransmitters to change the physical structure of the brain to kind of bring it back to life almost. Um, kind of like Frankenstein's monster, but without the, you know, horror of it. Um, nowadays, nowadays there's no horror. Now it's very safe and it's been done properly in countless cases. I've had, I've had clients that have needed it and have gone to it, you know, and they've come back whole new people. Um, and then we have trans, but because it's directly acting on your brain, there's a greater chance of side effects, uh, like memory loss and whatnot. So that's why then they invented transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is not directly touching your skin or your body. You don't need to be sedated for it. You can be fully awake, which is not the case for ECT. And it's basically sending magnetic pulses into your brain, into the same parts of the brain that ECT targets to basically boost your brain's, you know, structures and neurotransmitters and everything. Um, and it is uh, similar effects. You know, people will have increase in mood, increase in energy, um, you know, increased word recall, everything kind of comes back and is less likely to be severe memory loss symptoms um, that comes with ECT. Um, these are, but these are, again, the most absolute, absolute last resort for the most severe of treatment resistant depression. And it takes a long time for you to f get to the point where you have tried everything else to know, okay, I need EZT or TMS. And that's actually part of the way that, you know, it's determined is an essay is, okay, how long have you been doing, you know, psychotherapies? Have you seen different kinds of therapists that have tried different kinds of therapies? Uh, have you been on different kinds of medications and different combinations of medications over a certain period of time? And I don't even remember how long it has to be, but it basically it's a long time that you have to go without it. Um, but there is another kind of medical intervention for treatment resistant depression, and that is ketamine. Um, ketamine is actually a like tranquilizer, like it's like a horse tranquilizer, isn't it? But no, no, I don't know. Ketamine is a type of medication. It's very new. It's very new. And I think it's used a lot for pain management. Um, it is used a lot for pain management. But there's been research that has shown that ketamine infusions have also drastically improved mood and energy in people with treatment-resistant depression. Um, it is a very new therapy. It is still being researched uh, for further you know information so i'm not suggesting everybody just go jump on that bandwagon um talk with your doctor first um but it is something that is being researched because it has shown some promise i i have a little bit of information about ketamine treatment um i cannot speak to the origins ironically enough but i can tell you that current day it is in clinical trials i think you're going to see it introduced 
more in a mainstream way over the next two to five years. The way ketamine works is twofold. And, and Charlene, you're going to love this. It actually changes <laughs> the neuroplasticity of the brain. Uh, ketamine treatment actually literally, from a physiological perspective, creates new neural connections, which I think is just absolutely amazing. That sounds like Wrap magic. Your head that, that sounds like magic. It, 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 to me, it is magical because we always talk about, you know, the brain, it can only do so much. It can do a lot of new things. And chemically, it floods the system with serotonin, which is the chemical that contributes to depressive symptoms and treatment. So you've got it twofold. It's creating new connections in the brain that are healthy and beautiful and new, and you're flooded with these happy chemicals, <laughs> and it is life-changing. So I think you're going to be seeing a lot more people on ketamine treatment. Yeah. And the, the, other, the other kind of uh, in-process <laughs> research, very, very new, like within the I hadn't heard about this until like this past year. I, it may obviously may be older than that, but is um, using psychedelics like psycho psilocybin mushrooms. Um, so psilocybin mushrooms are hallucinogens. Um, there are other kinds of psychedelics uh, that are called empathogens, which so hallucinogens, as the name suggests, create hallucinations. But they also have other chemicals, the empathogens, which basically induce feelings of empathy and openness uh, and connection with people. And so it is being researched uh, using, you know, magic mushrooms, uh, but also MDMA. It, it by itself is not being used to treat uh, the depression. It's not a standalone. It is in conjunction with psychotherapies. So you get the patient into this calm, openness, you know, relaxed state through the empathogens or the hallucinogens or anything like that to kind of get them in this mindset that they're more open to talking about things that they would not have. It kind of breaks down that resistance, um, the, the id and the ego and stuff like that, that Freud talked about. And basically it allows them to feel more connected with the therapist. And then, so obviously you're not talking to them completely while they're high. Like you wait for them to cool down just a little bit, but it allows them they're, even when they come down off that high, they still have the residual feeling of openness. And so they're, they're better able to process their emotions in a healthier way. Um, and so it is being researched. The, the dosages are very small. It is, you know, not, it's yeah, microdosing. It's microdosing right? It is done only with the supervision of a medical professional, or multiple professionals. You'll have the medical professional to provide the dosaging uh, and will actually physically give it to you. You don't go to the store and buy it. It's provided in session by the doctor. And then the therapist will come in after you've had a minute to kind of acclimate to your high, uh, for want of a better word. And then that's when the therapy can really start. You can't go into a therapist's office and be like, hey, I want the psychedelic <laughs> treatment. Like that—that that is not how it's going to work. Again, these are mainly for medication resistant clients who haven't responded to psychotherapy as well as, you know, um, psychiatric medication, those type of things, which I kind of wanted to say something about that in general. That is frustrating for a lot of clients um, to get to that point where you said medication was going to work. It was going to help me and it didn't. I'm still depressed. 
I still can't get out of bed, those type of things. So I just wanted to um, kind of validate that the people who do get to this point or that I've treated that have gotten to this point are very, very uh, frustrated and, you know, may feel hopeless, you know, that there's nothing out there for them. That's why I wanted to bring these up was so that if you are somebody that's tried so many things, you know, and you just don't know that this is an option out there, you know, um, obviously you have to go through your doctor and everything like that, but just having the knowledge to say, okay, you know, um, this is an option if I tend to be medication resistant or medications don't work for me. Cause that's, that's where I find a lot of clients quit. And they're tired and it's, it's a lot of work. And again, so it's a lot of work to go through therapy and to try different medications. And you're asking someone who already doesn't have a lot of energy and motivation to do so much work. So, you know, in addition to validating their experiences, I want to say to all these people, you are probably the most strongest humans I've ever met. Because you keep pushing, you know, you, you, it may not feel like you're strong, but you are. Your experiences are your strength. And I know depression is horrible. And I'm not saying that just as a professional. And I don't normally disclose this to people, but I have been depressed. Uh, that's why I became a, that's why I became a therapist was because I've been there. Depression sucks, but you are strong and you are pushing through and you are surviving. You are not a victim. You are a survivor. And we want you to thrive. I'm going to join with you too. Cause like I said, the me too is such a, a powerful thing to share. I also have um, been diagnosed in the past with major depressive episodes. And so I, I know what that feels like. I think that makes us more powerful in the room with our people. Um, and one of the most powerful things that I personally say to my clients is I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for coming in here. I'm proud of you for staying open-minded. I'm proud of you for struggling. I am proud of you for recognizing that there's no one type of solution to this and you might stumble a lot and i'm proud that you're with me because we're going to we're going to figure this out the antithesis of being a burden to someone and that i always say to my clients too that that you are facing things head on where other people can't and that takes strength that takes resilience that takes I think that is an amazing uh, way to end the podcast uh, on that note. So on uh, next time, we are going to be covering um, anxiety. Um, that's going to be fun. We will have another guest for that episode. So stay tuned. We will, but we definitely want to want to thank Dr. Lilia to, for coming um and being with us and uh chiming in i had a blast which considering the topic is pretty impressive right exactly that's what we're trying for let's get the information out there but in a way that makes it a little bit easier to consume we usually do a, an outro and we say you can in individually find us you can find me at nat 20 therapy um and at true form unseen on tiktok uh, you can find me uh, on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram at My Hero Therapy. It is a, another podcast that I am starting up. Um, so far, we just have one episode out, but we are striving to get more out. Um, it is a therapy podcast, kind of like this, but focusing on how to be a hero in real life, uh, following the examples of Izuku Midoriya from the My Hero Academia anime. 
So stay tuned because that is hopefully going to get off ground floor soon. And and Dr. Lilia, where is there any place we can find you? A website or social media? I'm not so much big on social media, but absolutely you can visit my website, which is drchriscounseling.com. And you can read all about me. And it also has my business number and an encrypted email. So you can send me private messages. I would love to hear from any of you. Nice. All right. And uh, that's it. Uh, Thanks you all for listening. We'll be back again soon. Thank you, everybody. Please take care of yourselves and make today amazing. Mm -hmm.